Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. So we'll get started. I was... Um... Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome. Anybody at home here for the first time? Welcome to you. Um, sorry about where the screen is. I can kind of hide behind it. I'll have to have good posture. I was asking my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter, earlier. I didn't quite have any anything in mind for topic for tonight. And... Uh, so what should I teach at my meditation class tonight? And she said, boring, which is kind of just what she always says. But I was like, that's a great topic for us meditators, our relationship to, to boredom. And um, a couple of years ago, I, I got back, I was with, with my teacher, Ajahn Amaro, for a couple of days this last week. And Couple last time I saw him a couple of years ago in Thailand, um, he gave a series of talks on the importance of if you're interested in liberation, if you want to be happy, if you want to be free from suffering, um, on the importance of learning how to be bored. That actually, if you can't tolerate boredom, um, then there's no hope for happiness in your life. Right. I mean, you can say that about any topic. If you can't tolerate any aspect of life, and you, then you'll, you know, you'll be unhappy all of the time that that aspect of life is happening. So I'm going to explore boredom a little bit tonight. And, um, and my sense of boredom, in my own direct experience, is uh, it's connected with neutrality. When things my mind, my body, my internal or external experience is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Because if I'm in pain, I'm not bored. I might be unhappy. I might be suffering about the pain, the unpleasantness, but I'm not bored. It's engaging. Pain is, you know, gets my attention. I'm not bored. I'm and if it's pleasant, if the mind, the body, the experience that I'm having, I'm, I feel entertained, it's pleasant, it's, then I'm not bored. But when it's neutral, when, some, when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and this is a core part of the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness, our relationship to pleasure, our relationship to pain, and our relationship to neutrality. And I don't know about you, maybe some of you find pleasure boring. It's like, oh, pleasure again. It's fucking <laughs> dreary old pleasantness. Maybe some of you find pain boring. But I think it's probably pretty common that what we call boredom is when things are, are um, somewhat neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And, and I want to explore a little bit tonight uh, our mindfulness practice, the Buddha's encouragement to uh, learn to be at peace in the midst of neutrality. So as an intro, as we uh, 
before we meditate, I'm in the habit in the service of connection and in the service of um, meeting and connecting with other people in the community, whether you're in the room or you're at home on Zoom, uh, having you introduce yourselves to some people and I sometimes give a, a little topic of um, something to talk about as you introduce yourselves with the intention that the more you come to meditation, the more you, that you'll start to make connections. And it's a, uh, it's a huge part of the Buddhist path. Uh, we take refuge in the potential of awakening. We take refuge in the uh, truth, the Dharma, the, the, the teachings, the practices that lead to awakening, to freedom. And we take refuge in the community of people that will support us, that will walk this path with. Um, what we're trying to do, if you're, if you're trying to practice Buddhism, uh, you're trying to do something that is not popular, it's not mirrored in the world. Uh, if you get serious about meditation, it'll be really rare for you to know other people that are serious about meditation if you're not part of a community. Uh, even the Buddhists, even the millions and millions of Buddhists around the world, um, very few of them actually meditate out of the, the billions of religious people that call themselves Buddhists. Uh, and so what we're doing of saying like, oh, we want to, not so interested in being Buddhist myself, but I'm very interested in uh, awakening, very interested in how can I train my mind so that even when it's neutral, I'm not suffering about it. I'm not, how can I learn to be more peaceful in the midst of pain and pleasure and neutrality and um, and I know I need people in my life and that we all need people in our lives that support it, that encourage it, that uh, know what the fuck we're talking about. Because you talk to most people about this kind of stuff and they're just, you know, what are you, <laughs> why are you talking to me about neutrality? What's that mean? So in the service of getting to know your community, whether you choose to be a long-term part of this community or not, you're here tonight in class. So um, turn to somebody, you know, keeping relative social distance, don't get right in each other's faces, but you know, you can give each other a few feet of space and talk to each other, introduce yourself. You don't need to shake hands. You can just talk to each other um, and talk to each other, introduce yourself and talk to each other about your relationship to being bored or neutrality in a very concise way. You don't have 10 minutes to give a Dharma talk to your small group. Um, and at home, I will encourage you. I'm gonna open up these breakout rooms. And I noticed that maybe a third of the people choose not to go in the breakout rooms. And you're like, this is why I stay home to watch it on Zoom. <laughs> so I don't have to talk to people and I can just be a voyeur and just watch. I don't wanna fucking talk to people, I don't know. Um, and that's okay, you can totally do that. But also uh, I hope that what I'm saying makes sense that it's part of Buddhism to talk to other meditators to get to know other meditators, to connect. It's not about just getting good at meditation and just learning and, and being entertained by a Dharma talk or inspired, but it's about how do we make connections with each other? How do we talk to each other? How do we listen to each other? So um, if that's not enough of a guilt trip to get you to <laughs> actually do this, uh, that's okay too. 
So go ahead. I've opened the rooms for you at home and you guys can and try to talk to somebody you don't know already. If you're already here with your friends, maybe talk to somebody you don't know. Settling into an upright posture. Allowing our eyes to be gently closed, bringing our awareness into the body. Releasing any unnecessary tension we may be holding. Softening the face, the brow, the eyes, the jaw. Releasing the shoulders, chest, neck, torso. Breathing in, feel the sensations that the breath creates, the nostrils, chest, belly. Breathing out, softening. Let the belly soften as much as you can. As we establish mindfulness in the body, first foundation of our practice, do your best to bring an attitude of acceptance, of kindness or friendliness, so that we're receiving the sensations of the breath and body without judgment, without trying to control it, but just to accept it. No need to control the breath in any way. Just let your body breathe. Mindfulness receives and is aware of wherever we direct it. So we start by directing it towards the body breathing. Perhaps your 
mind will find the simple sensations of breath to be a bit boring. Go looking for something more entertaining in your mind in the future, planning, fantasizing, worrying. In the past, reminiscing, resenting, rehashing. For the first few minutes, gently return your attention to the breath rather than indulging in thought. Come back to the present time experience of sitting, breathing. Increase your tolerance for the boring old breath.
We're not trying to stop the brain from thinking, but we are trying to stop paying attention to what the brain is thinking about. Trying to give our full attention to the body, <clears throat> the sensations, the breath coming and going as the focus. Let the thoughts be in the background. Each time you find yourself floating off into future or past, gently returning the attention to the present.
staying with the breath for the whole of the practice tonight as the focus. But explore the feeling tone of the breath itself. Does it feel pleasant? Do you like the sensations of the breath? Is there anything unpleasant about the sensations of breathing? Or does it feel somewhat neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant? Explore that for each half a breath. How does breathing in feel? How does breathing out feel?
spend some time investigating the sensations in your body beyond the breath, the contact with the chair, your posture. Bring mindfulness to the places of discomfort in your body. Anything unpleasant in the back or knees, shoulders, without moving away from it, just bring your attention to anything that perhaps is uncomfortable in this moment in your body. Becoming aware of the unpleasant feeling tone. And then explore with mindfulness, where's the center, where's the edges, how far does that pain radiate down the knee into the calf or up the back or down the shoulders. Where's the edge of discomfort, if there's any discomfort? And what sensation is there past the edge? Where's the neutrality down in the calves, ankles, out into the arms, sides? Likewise with pleasant sensations, is there pleasure currently in your body? Anything pleasant feeling? Where's the center? Where's the beginning, the middle, the end? And as you bring your attention through your body, how much of the physical sensations in the body right now are perceived as neutral? The mind is drawn towards the pain. But when you pay attention to your arms and legs, 
torso, back, head and face. Directing your attention towards all the parts of your body that are not hurting.
Buddhism uh, can seem a little bit complicated if you're new to it. And there's all these lists, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the 32 parts of the body and the seven factors of awakening and the five hindrances and the 12 links of dependent origination. And there's all of these, you know, it's a little intimidating when you're new and you're like, what the fuck does all that shit mean? Why is there so many lists? But also, um, it's really simple. All of those lists are pointing towards uh, their descriptions. They're all descriptions of um, the way that we uh, human beings create suffering for ourselves. And the way that we can train our mind through meditation, renunciation, to not create so much suffering for ourselves or each other or others. This exploration of our relationship to neutrality and uh, our relationship to boredom, uh, I think primarily comes in the, what's called the second foundation of mindfulness. Uh, when we start meditating and we practice mindfulness of the breath, it's the first foundation. It's like the starting point is use your body to get here, present. Get out of your future think planning and, and past remembering and bring your full attention to the here and now. Um, in service of once you're here, once you're present with your breath, with your body, with what's happening right now, now that's when the work begins on some on some level that's where the transformation can start to take place when you're present if you're not present no hope at all <laughs> for liberation if you're off in the future you you know you can never find happiness in the future in the past you can never find well-being in the past only in the present so we use the breath the body to get present and then once we're present, a bit present, we explore, what am I feeling? What's my perception of the sensations and my body and my heart and my mind? And are they pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? My sense is that most of us are uh, painfully aware of our relationship to pain, you know, how much how you feel about pain <laughs> um, you know buddhism has this kind of maybe a little too and i like to explore this i think it's interesting for all of us to explore it uh there, there tends to be this assumption that uh everybody dislikes pain, pain they, that everybody meets unpleasant experience, painful experience with aversion. That's one of the core causes of our suffering is you hate pain, aversion, resistance. But maybe you can think about some painful experiences that you actually like. Can you think of some? You don't have to name them out loud or anything, but I, I love to talk about our relationship to spicy food. It's one of my favorite topics. 
and just and kind of uh, acknowledge that um, spicy food, not you know like hot hot sauce, is uh, painful. The actual experience of it is um, your taste buds are being burned. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, different people, different preferences have different levels of uh, enjoyment around that kind of pain. Some people say, nope, I only want pleasant sensations on my tongue, sweet, salty, you know, only, or um, I think it's important to acknowledge that when we're talking about the second foundation, your perception of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, some of the things that you find pleasant might actually be painful. Like, um, I don't know, like a good workout. And you're burning. It's actually pain, but you like it. <laughs> um, spicy food, it's actually pain, but you like it. Um, maybe even meditation. And maybe, maybe even like, oh, my... Back is sort of aching, but I feel a sense of accomplishment. I, I, I like it. It's pain. But you understand this muscle. Right. Yeah. Which, right. So that there's a feeling of, even with that unpleasant sensation of accomplishment and gains. Pain, what is that? I saw some, maybe it was a Marines thing or something like that. And it said, pain is weakness leaving the body. <laughs> or if you have pain, like something like a tease, or you see it after you hit you, like, oh my gosh, how oh, beautiful. When it passes, when it passes, right. Yeah, so there is something about the unpleasantness of existence that we're so grateful for when it's impermanent. Yeah. If it is too chronic, if it's too sustained, it becomes so fatiguing. But if it's temporary pain, it's... What about pleasure? Do you... Is there any pleasant experiences that you don't like? Like maybe some of you don't like sweets. But kind of pleasant, right? Most people would think like, oh, sugar's, it's a pleasant sensation on the tongue. But then some people are like, oh, no, I don't like that kind of, it's too pleasant or it's too sweet. It's too. Especially here in America. Our shit's way too sweet. <laughs> way too sweet. Yeah. Yeah, we put sugar on our sugar. I take my son to get some candy and instead of getting like some chocolate or something, he's like, I just want that like sugar, stick of sugar that's red or whatever they've done to it. They put a little bit of flavor in and it's, just, it's probably actually fucking corn syrup. It's not even real sugar, but so sweet. I wonder about um, pleasant experiences that you have aversion to. 
Like something, it's not like taking a compliment, receiving somebody offering, being generous to you, being kind to you, being friendly. A lot of us have this kind of like, oof, I don't like that. It's supposed to be pleasant, right? The attention, love, especially if it's not creepy and it's like <laughs> actually like appropriate loving attention, but that there's something about that kind of, oh, I don't find that pleasant at all. That's my self-esteem, my self-worth, my social anxiety, whatever it is, is like, although uh, you complimenting me is supposed to feel good and generally people would be like, praise, I, you know, yeah. It's supposed to inflate the ego and we're supposed to like it. But sometimes it's like, no, fucking don't talk to me. Stop being nice to me. So you know about your relationship to pleasure and pain on some level, right? But what's your relationship to neutrality? Do you know? And so in our meditation, you learn a lot about your relationship, trying to just be with the breath. How uh, tolerant of just paying attention to the breath and the body and most of what's happening in the body is probably neutral unless you have some injuries or illness or even if you're sitting here and your back hurts or your knees hurt or wherever there's some discomfort after 20 minutes or body, some parts of the body, but most likely 80% of your body is not in pain. All of our attention might go to that 10% of our body that's intent, you know, it's like that survival instinct just goes like, wait a minute, there's an ache. <laughs> Get obsessed with the ache. When, you know, if you, the tops of my arms aren't aching, the, my sides aren't aching, the tops of my legs aren't aching, it's just right there. And all of my attention wants to go there and ignore all of the neutral, neutral, non, not pleasant or unpleasant sensations that the body's experiencing. Could you get a sense um, in the investigation of your breath uh, pleasant or unpleasant, the sensations of breathing as it enters and exits the nostrils, liking, disliking, neutral. I find it pretty neutral. I mean, I can bring a sort of gratitude and appreciation like I'm alive, I'm breathing. It's amazing. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> But I have to sort of manufacture that. Really, I'm just like, oh, yeah, breath again. Yep, still breathing. Here it comes again. There it goes. Here it comes. There it goes. A little tickle on the nostrils. Not very pleasant. A little bit boring. A little neutral. So often I'll watch my attention get drawn back into thinking. Planning. And where does your, where's your planning mind go? Planning for something pleasant in the future. Maybe your planning mind worries. Something unpleasant is going to happen in the future. Some fantasy. Or to the past. Well, the breath is kind of neutral, not that interesting. But this argument that I had... 
1993 <laughs> is really interesting. It's engaging. Feel passionate about this fight I had 20 years ago. And I would be so much better. I have, I've got the best comebacks now. Well, back then I just froze, whether it was 20 years ago or last week or. So I hope this is, uh, the context of this is making sense. Uh, what the Buddha is teaching us, what Buddhism is teaching us, is that it's possible to be at peace. It's possible. If you can tolerate neutrality. And maybe even learn to enjoy it. I found... I still find on some levels, I've gotten better at it over the years, but I, when, I, when I realized this early in my meditation practice, I was like, fuck, I don't know if I can do this because I'm not very good at being bored. And I don't only uh, feel bored around neutrality, I feel aversive to it, maybe even afraid of it, of the quiet moments of the, I'm so kind of addicted to suffering, so identified with suffering, and uh, so habituated to looking for pleasure, but also I'll settle for pain. I'll, you know, like, I'll, I'll sabotage if it's boring. And, but at the same time, I would have told you, well, if somebody said, well, why are you meditating? I said, well, because I want to experience serenity. I want to experience peace. But when I got just a little taste of peace with paying attention to my <laughs> breath and body, I was like, oh, I don't like this at all. <laughs> this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is fucking boring. I thought peace was going to be I guess I wasn't looking for peace. I was looking for bliss. <laughs> I was looking for something more intense, a little more extreme than tolerating neutrality. But the more you meditate, the more I've meditated, I'm sure, the, I'm sure you're having this experience. I'd imagine it's universal. The more you meditate and you learn to just be with the breath, the body, start identifying like, yeah, there's the pleasant experiences, there's the neutral experiences, there's the uh, unpleasant experiences. And they're all impermanent, they're all coming and going. And, and a lot of life, I mean, uh, you know, as everybody knows, and most of, you know, a lot of our community recovering from addiction, chasing pleasure running from pain is a, you know, a, a kind of guaranteed recipe for making it worse, for creating more and more suffering. And then 
we get sober or we come to meditation for whatever reason, not everybody is coming out of, out of an addiction, but some dissatisfaction, some seeing the dead end of chasing pleasure and running from pain and, and waking up to like, it's fucking impossible. I can't sustain pleasure. I can't avoid pain. I don't even know what neutrality is. <laughs> I think a lot of people, when we come here, But then we start meditating and we start to become more intimate with the reality of these second foundations, some, some pleasant, some unpleasant. And then a lot of life becomes neutral when you stop trying to control and manipulate and avoid and start being with yourself as you are. Hopefully, I mean, maybe in the early stages, it's like, no, it's still mostly painful, mostly painful. My mind is abusive, all of that. But you'll, you'll get to a place if you keep meditating where it's like your mind's not so abusive anymore. More and more comfortable in your own skin. And then it's, oh, shit, uh, how do I live with the reality that being at peace isn't that fun? I mean, compared to suffering, it's very desirable. <laughs> it's very, you know, like this is even sometimes the Buddha talks about his enlightenment. He's like the bliss of liberation. Even though pain continues, even though neutrality can, you know, uh, it's not pleasurable all of the time, but in comparison, you know, in contrast to the suffering of clinging and aversion and it's blissful to be at peace, but it's not necessarily pleasant. It's not necessarily fun. I know I have a strong tendency towards wanting to have fun. And I do a lot of intentional activities that I think are fun to create pleasant sensations, whether it's motorcycles or cars or bicycles or skateboards or surfing or uh, playing poker. Like there's just all of these activities that like I like to do, they're fun. Listening to music, going to movies, shows, just like all of the entertainment, like I like it, it's pleasant. <laughs> and I spent a lot of my life as most of us do, looking for it, seeking what's, you know, as, as a recovering person, what's sober, healthy, appropriate, fun. But then I've spent all of this time in my adult life too, meditating, going on meditation retreats, anywhere from three-day retreats to 10-day retreats to month-long retreats. I once did a 90-day retreat, three-month silent meditation retreat and it was terribly boring <laughs> some of it but then also the more mindful the more concentrated the more present i got sometimes i'd be doing walking meditation a month in two months in and be like this is so fucking interesting I'm just not doing anything. I'm just walking back and forth or just sitting here for another hour out of the, you know, seven 
hour-long meditations a day that we're doing. And, but it became mindfulness itself made it not boring, but interesting. And I think, uh, I mean, what do you think? Do you think that boredom is having a neutral experience and craving for it to be pleasant? Is that when you're bored? It's neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but then the craving kicks in. I want this to be more interesting, more fun, more pleasant than it actually is. I'm bored, craving. Or the flip side, and it's maybe the same thing, is um, it's neutral and I don't like it. Aversion. It's quiet. It feels foreign. It feels maybe vulnerable. It's a little too peaceful in here. A little too comfortable. The sabotage, the aversion to... When you're bored, do you mostly go looking for pleasure or sometimes go looking for trouble? And, you know, a bunch of degenerates in our community. So we can be honest. So it all comes down probably to um, the cause of boredom uh, is the same thing as the cause of every kind of suffering that we have. The second noble truth, the Buddha's teaching, his experience, that all of our dissatisfaction, all of our unhappiness, all of our suffering has a root cause in something that's not your fault. That's not, you know, that's just the natural human survival instinct, um, which shows up as repetitive craving. And because we all have this instinctual, repetitive craving, second noble truth, um, it makes neutrality often for us show up as boredom. And part of the task of the second noble truth is to relinquish craving, is to not take it so personal, not, not be so reactive to when your mind is saying, this is boring, do something. And say like, no, this is neutral and I'm just gonna hang out with it. People often say, well, but don't you think it's getting worse with technology? And I don't know, you know, the Buddha said this against the stream teaching and, and statement from the Buddha 2,600 years ago, he said, in this generation of degenerates that are so addicted to pleasure, so aversive to pain, so self-centered, he's like, I don't know if liberation, like who's going to actually be willing to be bored and be mindful? So it's so counter to the culture, to the human nature. And so he's saying this 2,600 years ago where there's like people meditating everywhere and there's no fucking cell phones and you have to be more creative about your entertainment. <laughs> it does feel like, I, I, I see it in myself, 
so quick to like, you know, waiting for something rather than just sitting around waiting at the car wash or so quick to just be like, well, I guess I got five minutes. <laughs> rather than just sitting here and being with my own mind for five minutes, I think I'll check out what's going on on Instagram. And that constant going back to social media or checking our email or texting someone or re looking outside of ourselves and avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. And then you sit down to meditate. And I think for a lot of people, meditation is the only time of the day that we're not looking outside, that we're not on the phone, on the computer or listening to music, watching TV, engaging in some conversation with other people where we finally stop for however long you meditate daily, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, five minutes, however long it is you, you sit and you say, I'm gonna give myself my full attention. And this is of necessary. And if, you know, of course, always the context, if you'd like to be uh, truly free, we have to learn to be at ease in the midst of pain when life is painful, how to be at ease in the midst of pleasure when life is pleasurable without clinging to it and just, you know, turning it into suffering and how to be at ease when life is neutral, the mind, the body, the environment is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And I like that Ajahn Amaro, rather than uh, saying like, well, if you're truly mindful, you'll never be bored. There's that humility that just acknowledges none of us are mindful enough to never be bored. That the reality is because the second noble truth, because the repetitive craving is driving humanity and we're part of that <laughs> You're going to be bored. So learn to be bored. Learn to tolerate boredom without so quickly going to get rid of it. Learn to just be like, okay, here I am, and it's not very pleasant, and I'm just going to sit with that. Here I am, and it's not very painful. I'm going to try to appreciate the absence of pain. And that's one of the reasons why in our meditation, so important to look for the places that don't hurt. Because your mind wants to go to what's wrong, survival instinct, what hurts? What doesn't hurt? Let that be a big part of your investigation, big part of your mindfulness. What doesn't hurt right now? What is neutral? What sensations can I feel? Can I perceive? And the breath tends to be a, a really good objective awareness for that. I was reminded recently about a story that Ajahn Samedo, my teacher's teacher, tells about how he was a new 
some fairly new monk in the monastery with uh, Ajahn Chah, his teacher. And they, they went in for the Dharma talk. And sometimes in the monasteries, you know, like, you know how sometimes even here, you're an hour and 15 minutes in, you're starting to get bored. Starting to think about like, oh shit, how much longer do I have to listen to this shit? <laughs> and the monastery, sometimes the Dharma talks are three hours or four hours and they just go on and on and on. And there's a level of respect and commitment that you can't leave, especially if you're a monk, like you can't leave. You're in it. You're going to sit there for four hours. But usually, you know, like you're also going to like get these amazing talks and you're going to be interested and inspired. And, you know, four hours is a lot, no matter how good it is. But Sumedha was talking about this one time when he went in and Ajahn Chah um, had another senior monk there and they just sat and like, so you're all here and you can't leave. And I'm just talking to my friend for like three hours, not even giving you a talk. And you can't leave because it would be so disrespectful. And Sumedho was talking about how like impatient and how bored and then all of the rage that came and just these waves of how could he do this to us? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, two hours in and then three hours in starting to go like, oh, wow, like what an interesting you know, uh, fit my mind has been having. And what a great teaching this is that I'm just captive here and I'm just being patient and tolerant. And by the time uh, the talk was given, he was like, that was amazing that I got to investigate my relationship to expectation and entitlement and, you know, um, being bored, not being entertained, not being inspired, not getting what I expected, what I thought I signed up for. There's another monk, uh, actually Ajahn Amra, when I was with him last week, he was telling this story about how in the tradition, the Dharma talks can be a bit hit or miss, like me, I'm sure, um, because, and I really identify with these guys, where it's forbidden to prepare what you're going to teach. Like you're allowed to come up with a topic, like, and which is what I do. I kind of ask my daughter, what should I talk about tonight? She's like bored. I'm like, okay, let's see what comes out. I've got the topic. Let's see what comes out. And so sometimes you know, it's quite good and interesting. Um, but sometimes like, there's not that much. And so Amaro was talking about how um, Ajahn Pasano, who's a senior monk, he said one time Ajahn Pasano got up there to give this the talk and everyone's gathered. And he sat there and kind of closed his eyes and he sat there and everybody's waiting. Okay, we're waiting for the talk. Then he just opened his eyes and he said, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and fake it and try to talk about something that's, that I don't feel moved you know, and inspired. So I just got nothing. And that was it. And just like, okay, no talk tonight because I don't feel like it. And Amaro was saying like, I just appreciated the integrity and the sincerity of being able to show up and then not perform. 
anyways, I'm going on tangents now. Open to questions, comments. What's your experience with your relationship neutrality? How's it changing? Are you aware of it? Is this uh, part of your practice? I hope it is. I hope it, if it hasn't been, that it will be a central part of your investigation. Any questions about this or anything else online, you can raise your hand or in the room, you can raise your hand. I have a question. Tex, go ahead. So I've noticed for me, um, I try to focus on the breath and it seems like my thoughts just continue to hijack my ability to just focus on the breath. And, and I try to be kind and compassionate to that fact, but I, but the racing thoughts, I, like I can't, I can't shed them. You know, I'm really struggling with that. Yeah. Do you have any advice on how to, on maybe some other things I could focus on outside of just the breath maybe, or? Um, it's a, uh, I don't know if you could hear in my home, he was saying that, um, trying to be with the breath, but that the racing thoughts um, and the kind of hijack the ability to be with the breath. And do I have any um, suggestions or uh, other practices maybe? Mostly my encouragement is just to accept that that's part of the process and to not um, try to do something else or and on some level to Remember that the context is we're not trying to stop the thoughts. And I like the way you're saying hijack because um, there's one image, I don't know if you've heard it yet, uh, where part of what we're doing is we're, uh, you know, in the third foundation, you know, when we are with the breath, you're in the first foundation, you are trying to ignore your mind. But then in third foundation, you're no longer ignoring it, you're just watching it. And there's an image that's used sometimes of like, you're watching the train of thoughts and you're just sitting there and you're watching like, oh, look at the, look at them race by, planning, remembering, hoping, fearing, lusting, judging, hating, loving, whatever thoughts are passing by with a, you know, unentangled awareness of like, that's just what the mind does. And the image of, um, the attention, you know, we do, we want the attention to be like by the side of the tracks, observing, not hijacked or like kind of taken on a ride down the tracks. But of course, we all, it's just what, you know, our attention is so habituated to being identified with what the mind is doing. Now I'm thinking, I'm not observing the mind, I'm thinking about that argument from 93. Okay. Non-judgmental thinking, acknowledge it, come back. The definition of mindfulness is non-judgmental present time awareness. So what you're aware of is a breath or two, and now I'm aware of thinking. No judgment, thinking, but I'm gonna choose to come back to the breath. And I feel a breath or two, maybe three or four breaths, and then planning. Oh, now I'm in planning again, come back, <laughs> get off the train, come back. I feel one breath gone again, <laughs> two breaths gone again, five breaths gone. But that's just the process. So mostly like you just persevere, you just keep coming back to the breath. And at some point you'll um, break your addiction to your mind. 
you'll still get hijacked sometimes, but it'll become less and less and you'll take it less personal. But especially this context that we're not trying to stop the thoughts, trying to stop your mind from thinking makes as much sense as trying to stop your heart from beating. Not quite, that's a little extreme because stopping your heart from beating would actually kill you. Stopping your thoughts would be pleasant. <laughs> but I use that analogy because pay attention to what's going on here. Your heart beats all by itself. Your lungs breathe all by themselves. And you don't take it that personal, right? Like you're just like, I'm breathing. Heart's beating. I don't, I'm not over here going like, yep, that's me. I'm making my heart beat. Just beats all by itself. As it turns out, the same thing is true with our brains. They think all by themselves. And it's not so personal and it's not your fault. It's just part of this organism is that you have, you know, you have our organs that digest and process and you have a heart that beats and you have lungs that breathe. And the brain's job is to think. And part of it is fueled by this craving and aversion. And it's not your fault. It's not personal. Meditation's not going to be a lobotomy that all of a sudden like gets rid of all the unpleasant thoughts, just gives you awareness of, oh, how, what my mind does. It plans and it judges and it lusts and it fears and it, that's not who, you know, it gives that awareness of, uh, I don't, I get some choice. I think of, I said, breaking our addiction to the mind, knowing that you and I are recovery people. Like if you're, an, if you're addicted to substances, you can practice abstinence. So think of your relationship to the mind like a food addiction. You can't stop eating. You can't stop thinking. What you can do and what the Buddha suggested was be mindful enough that you start to identify what are wholesome thoughts and what are unwholesome thoughts. You develop uh, discernment of what thoughts are trustworthy and worth contemplating and what is just junk food not worth eating and renounce the sugar and the flour and the stuff that like your bottom line recovery is I don't feed hatred in my mind. I don't feed lust in my mind. I don't feed those thoughts. They're going to still come, but I'm not going to indulge in them or I'm going to try not to. I hope that's helpful. Mostly it's just like, you just keep coming back and everybody's lost in thought most of the time. <laughs> and then the longer you meditate, the more you're here and less lost. Yeah. Yeah. Please, Tara. Well, I was a high school English teacher, and I did try to sort of avoid boredom with the students because they would turn on me. You know? <laughs> and I didn't want to be boring. But, and so, like, for example, when we would read Lord of the Flies, I would skip all the descriptions of the scenery and everything and try to cut to the more exciting parts so that we get something from it, you know. And then I thought about like all the things that I do to avoid boredom, like whether it's going to see a play that's really good as opposed to something that for some people would enjoy like an action-packed thing, but I would just think that's so repetitive just to see a fight scene after a fight scene. And so it's different for each person. So and 
but a lot of times like anger or fighting, like fight club is really great. You know, the fighting or the sex, if it's really intense, could be really wonderful, but it's how it's done too. So, and then I think also seeking out any sense pleasure, whether it's a good taste, but it's, it has to be something new, right? And different. And even like that addiction is like wanting to push something to a little more intensity. Like you don't just want that child's birthday party, all the parents are sitting there getting smashed, drinking, you know, because the repetitive thing of just watching them, they pin the tail on the donkey for an hour is like too, too much or hearing like people brag about their job or something. So you have to just like, or that work meeting, if you could possibly like be drinking in it, wouldn't it be better, you know, or something or, you know, the uh, stimulant drug to just take it to a little bit more euphoric level of something rather than the concert just be even more intense. And so, but even that, like after time, if you keep doing the same behavior and over and over, that starts to be a little bit boring because not only doesn't it have the effect, but you've repeated it. So it's the same thing. And it's like, also, when you start having health problems, you have to pull back from doing that drug so much. And so it's a less intense level. But so I do think like in a certain sense, like life and health, you're trying to chase that pleasure and away from boredom. But do you think that's good or, but I do appreciate like you're saying the breath, you have to bring something to appreciating the breath. And uh, my late husband, Michael, did die of a lung disease. So I started really appreciating breath. But I, I like, sometimes I can get bored by meditation and watching the breath. But sometimes I can get past that and kind of appreciate that and enjoy it. So what is your thought on chasing after pleasure or intensity or also, and how that applies to meditation, should we try to appreciate it or stay in more of the neutral place? My sense is that uh, it's so important to get good, skilled at uh, being able to be bored, to not be addicted to uh, entertainment and pleasure and and that when we do and met, the more we meditate the more we get good at that the more retreats we go on the more we give ourselves over to a lot of the time i'm willing to just be with what is naturally without intoxicants without uh extreme sports without <laughs> my phone without you know just with ourselves as the mind is incredibly important the better we more we do that then no problem, you know, enjoying the concert or the extreme sports or the delicious food or the sweets or spicy or whatever, as long as we can also be without it. As long as it's a bit like, yeah, I really like doing that, but I don't need to do it. And just because you like doing it doesn't mean that you should that you have to stop doing it. Now, when it comes to like the, the drugs and alcohol examples that were you you're using. Um, you know, if you've crossed the line into addiction, then you know, actually that's just dead end causes more suffering. But even if you haven't crossed the line into addiction, it's still a waste of time 
to be chasing that kind of uh, intoxicated pleasure because you can't be mindful. You can't develop the non-attachment that you want to develop, that, you, that we need to develop when you're intoxicated. And so this is why the Buddha's teaching was this path of training the mind is a sober path and that it can't be done by those who are not practicing abstinence was his teaching. So I think that that's, you know, in support of, of what we're doing. But then there's nothing wrong with enjoying life. Wholesome pleasures. I'll take one last question from Kay and then we'll end there. Thank you. No, I'll try to be quick. Um, Cause I've been, it's funny that this is the topic. Cause I've actually been pondering boredom for a little while and my life has been drama free for some time and I'm, I like it. This is what I've been aiming for. And I was uh, being, I was aware of how sort of like sometimes discontent I am with it, but if it, if, 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 everything really is just a relationship to the experience, right? Do we have the choice to, you know, do these normal mundane things that we do and just choose to, um, you know, find it interesting, have this, you know, choose to, to, to create a relationship uh, one way or the other. Um, with it. Like when I'm in a great mood, riding a bike is like a freaking roller coaster ride. Whoa, I'm having fun and woo, I'm riding a bike. When I'm not in a great mood, riding a bike is like a slog. Like, motherfucker, I have to pedal all the way from A to B, right? That's a pain in the ass. So, isn't it? So, so what's what is wagging the dog here? Uh, is it our relationship? to just these general experiences. When I'm not outside looking for outside experiences to fill and entertain my day with whatever, or other people to fill and entertain my day. When I'm just with me, I'm walking, I'm riding a bike, I'm looking at a flower. Is it my choice to choose how I want to relate to that experience that will, that will create my happiness, boredom, or sadness? Or is it the other way around? That's my question. My sense is that with um, long-term training of the mind, it becomes our choice. But um, without long-term training of the mind in, in deep mindfulness, um, we don't have that much choice. It's just, we're reactive. Yes, it's our relationship to what's happening, not what's happening, right? That's what you're, it's, it's not what's happening. It's how we're relating to what's happening. That is the truth. That's the ultimate truth. It's possible to be at peace in the midst of pain. If you've deeply trained your mind to be compassionate towards pain, but until you've deeply trained your heart and mind in compassion, you just hate pain and you suffer about it and you don't get to choose to be like, well, this is really painful, but I'm choosing not to suffer about it. <laughs> it's, you know, so we can't fake choose. It's not a choice until it's a choice. And it's not a choice for most of us until uh, somewhere down, you know, in certain moments, you'll get that sort of ability to choose, but to have consistent ability to not suffer about what's happening uh, is going to take most of us a long time. 
and I'll end with um, somebody asked the Dalai, this is one of my favorite quotes. Somebody asked the Dalai Lama, well, how long is it going to take? And he said something like, I don't know, but your impatience is part of the problem. And if you commit deeply to your meditation practice, to your study, to your renunciation, to this path, check in on your progress once every decade or so. Meditate every day. Practice the five precepts. Participate in Sangha. Make connections with other people. Do Buddhism. And then in 10 years, look at yourself and say, am I suffering less now that I've been meditating every day for a decade? And then when you're 20 years in, do I have more choice? I have more equanimity? Do I have more loving kindness, more compassion? 30 years in. And look at your practice over the decades. Now, what's true is that if you don't have a somewhat disciplined, consistent practice, you're not going to magically have more ability to choose. It comes from disciplined training. It's just like working out or something else. You know, if you go to the gym all of the time, you're going to get in really good shape. If you meditate all of the time, you're going to get in really good spiritual shape <laughs> of the ability to choose how you're responding to what's happening. But just because you know that that's an uh, ultimate possibility doesn't mean you're there yet. Just because you know it's possible to lift 500 pounds because you saw somebody do it on TV doesn't mean you can lift 500 pounds because <laughs> you're not there yet. If you really want to lift 500 pounds, maybe you can work out every day for the next decade and maybe you'll get there. Hope that makes sense. We'll leave it there for tonight. Thank you for your practice and uh, this perspective is offered for your reflection, your contemplation. And, uh, you know, dig in deep, look at your relationship to neutrality and boredom and maybe do some practice this week. That's just do some boring shit. <laughs> Hang out with it. See how it goes. When instead of grabbing the phone, just breathe. And um, I'm out of town for a week, but I'll be back next Monday in time for class. So I'll see you next Monday if you come through. Class is done by donation. Um, 15 or $20 donation is suggested for the drop-in class on Monday online. There is a link to the website for donations. Please give generously. Uh, if you're here, you can donate cash into the bowl or you can do the Venmo. Um, Aptara will be at the desk. There's also um, new, last week I showed the new Against the Stream. This is the new Dharma Punks shirt. We have t-shirts and sweatshirts. Your purchase of this merch supports the center too. So consider getting a new swag for yourself. And we'll leave it there for tonight. May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us experience liberation. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Good to see everybody.
Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.